I am so excited to bring to you this interview today in honor of the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women, which is later this week, which was created specifically to increase awareness around women's heart health and cardiovascular disease as it pertains to women. I am interviewing a powerhouse of a female, so much so that as you'll hear in the beginning of the interview, I am almost tongue-tied in introducing her. But Dr. Odaimi Caseda, who is a dear friend as well as a preeminent uh, authority in the field of cardiovascular disease in women, she is the director of the Women's Heart Center at Christ Hospital in Cincinnati. She is also a researcher and the recipient of a million-dollar grant specifically to address women's heart disease and prevention in women. There are so many important pearls and nuggets in this episode. Get out your notepad and listen intently because this one is a must listen. I can't wait to get started, so let's dig in. Welcome back to Health Bite, my podcast where I offer you small, actionable bites towards healthy weight and weight management through greater mental, emotional, and physical well-being. I wholeheartedly believe that our relationship with food is a window into our relationship with ourselves. Understanding this relationship will not only facilitate healthy weight and weight management, but will have rippling effects that impact every aspect of your life. In the nearly two decades that I've worked as an obesity medicine specialist, I have seen firsthand the life-changing effects of this transformative work, and I'm so excited to share my insights with you. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Udine, and I created this podcast as an alternative to the noise to offer you knowledge-based guidance in the areas of nutrition, fitness, habit change, and mindset that I use with my patients in my medical practice every single day to help them achieve healthy weight and health. More episodes are available at dradrianudim.com slash podcast. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter and shoot me an email. I'd love to hear about your journey. Okay, here we go. Let's dig in to this week's episode. So uh, because you're my dear friend, I'm going to refer to you by your first name, Odaimi, even though you are so... I, I don't know what to say about you. You've done so many amazing things and so much important research for women. And I'm just grateful to you and your work. And I'm grateful to be here because as you know, you have been an incredibly inspirational to me. I've told you this before. The first time I saw you present, I was like, wow, I want to be like that one day. And you've been like an incredible mentor to me and friends. So I'm very excited to be on your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure to have you. This topic is so very important and so very timely since this week is Go Red for Women's Heart Health. We are on the speaking circuit together. We educate our colleagues. And over the last many years, every single lecture series we start, we always started in the, in the same way, which is, wow, heart disease affects women significantly. It is the number one cause of death in women, mm -hmm. not breast cancer, which is what we all kind of as women fixate on. Yeah. And yet, even though this is not new news, even though this is well substantiated, our women don't know this fact, right? This is not, this is not common knowledge. So first yeah. of all, why, right? Yeah. Why? 
Yeah. You know, why it's not common knowledge, I don't think we have a great understanding. I mean, the reality is that it is the number one killer in women, but women still think it's other things like cancer or other diseases. And and in fact, what we what we've seen, unfortunately, is actually a decline in the the knowledge. Like there's a decline in that knowledge. People and then I could imagine it's going to be even worse when they look at it again now with the pandemic, that they just don't recognize the heart disease as their number one killer. I think it's because, unfortunately, even in 2023, people still think the heart disease is a man's problem and don't really realize that it's also a women's problem and that women have actually worse outcomes if they have heart disease than even a man with heart disease. And it's so important to talk about this awareness because it, we can impact the natural, we can impact the course of disease, meaning that we don't want this to be about doom and gloom. The beauty of, of heart disease is that yeah. it is so preventable, which we're going to get to. But before we get to that, can you talk about some of the unique risk factors um, in women? I think we all know cholesterol, high blood pressure, don't smoke, but there are risk factors that are exclusive to women. What are they? Yes. So that's a great point that in addition to the traditional risk factors, which are the ones that you mentioned, smoking, diabetes, hypertension, um, tobacco use, physical inactivity, in addition to all of those known risk factors, which by the way, um, they don't affect men and women the same. If you actually look at those traditional risk factors, women actually with those risk factors are at a higher risk of heart disease. So I think that's interesting on its own. But then when you talk about women's specific risk factors, there's more and more interest in that. And so we're predominantly talking about pregnancy-related risk factors, so adverse pregnancy outcomes. What is what are those? So that's like preeclampsia or gestational hypertension. So high blood pressure during pregnancy, preterm delivery, gestational diabetes, small for gestational age, so a small baby. All of those you know, are known in the literature as adverse pregnancy outcomes. And we've actually learned that when women have these complications of pregnancy, they actually develop heart disease at an earlier age, and they're at a much higher risk of developing heart disease. I'm talking about like twofold higher risk of heart disease if you have an adverse pregnancy outcome like preeclampsia and people just don't recognize that they don't realize that, you know, if you had a complication of pregnancy, it did not end with that pregnancy. Many times we talk about pregnancy as a woman's first stress test, meaning that if you develop one of these adverse pregnancy outcomes, you failed that stress test, meaning you're at a higher risk of developing heart disease later on because you had that adverse pregnancy outcome in pregnancy. So that's one big one. The other one is related to another thing that only happens in women, which is menopause. So we're learning more and more about menopause and early menopause is a very known risk factor when it comes to heart disease in women. And so again, very important that if you have early menopause, again, we're going to talk a lot more about how do you decrease your risk? Cause there's a lot that you can do about it. Another, other ones that, um, you know, are not women specific, but are more common in women are like rheumatologic diseases, like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, those things are more common in women and then mental health and stress. So we're starting to recognize that there is a very strong link between mental health and mental disorders and heart disease. And unfortunately women have a higher prevalence of these mental illnesses. And so that is also going to affect proportionately. Yeah, I I think not only does this bring to mind the point that women are at risk 
just like men are, but it also points to the fact that it starts at a younger age. So I think another myth or misconception is that we don't have to worry about our hearts until we're in our 60s or until we're postmenopausal. But what you're saying is that women can identify their risk factors even as early as the first time they become pregnant. Yes. And actually you, you brought up a really good point, which I really want to highlight because I think this is another, you know, misconception or another thing that people don't realize. So heart disease and heart disease being the number one killer, it is not the grandma's disease. This is the number one cause of death in young moms. So brand new moms, the number one cause of death is heart disease. I don't think people realize that. So, and also, for instance, there's a study that came out a few years ago that looked at heart attacks in young women, and it actually found that there was an increase in the heart attacks in young women. So I, I, I'm happy that you brought that up because, because it shows you that this is not our grandma's disease, or this is not the disease that you get after menopause. This unfortunately is something that you can get very early on. Can you, we kind of glossed over this at the beginning. Can you just point to the numbers? What are some of the statistics in uh, terms of heart disease in women? Yeah, so the, the the numbers are astonishing. So one in three women will die of heart disease. That is why it's the number one killer in women. And then if you- One look- in three. I mean, I feel like we just need to pause, take that in. That really is astonishing. Yes, it's real. And, and that number um, has not changed despite- all these campaigns, despite Go Red for Women. I mean, Go Red for Women is not only February, the first Friday of February really should be something that we think about year long so that we could really change these statistics. And as you brought up earlier, 80% of heart disease is preventable. 80%. So this should not be like dark and gloomy. You know, it should actually be more about what can we do so that we can beat this, right? So that we don't have to worry about heart disease in men or women, because it really is the number one killer of both. Yeah. So really pointing towards proactive empowerment, really. This is really an empowerment message for women, not just to, to say that we're at greater risk, but to highlight what we can actually do. And the first step, I think, is recognition, right? So can you talk a little bit about symptoms? Uh, We know that women present differently than men. And so can you tell us a little bit about how that they're different? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's really about empowerment. And this is, I think this about the symptoms brings out that empowerment and, and advocating for yourself. Because what we've learned is that yes, women can present with a heart attack, like they show in Hollywood with like that crushing chest pain. Sometimes, you know, they may even collapse from, from if they're having a very serious heart attack. But the reality is that a lot of times it's not that Hollywood, um, you know, heart attack presentation. And so what we can see in women is that they may have these, what we used to call atypical symptoms. Now we realize they're actually more typical in women than we thought before. So what am I talking about? You know, some people, some women will literally tell you that they had jaw pain, 
that developed. They'll tell you they had like right arm pain that developed, maybe came up, came a little bit into the chest, acute nausea, vomiting all of a sudden with maybe chest pressure, maybe not epigastric pain, which many times people think is just indigestion. So those are the ways that a woman can present with a heart attack and not just with crushing chest discomfort. Shortness of breath is another one. Um, even strokes, like I always now like to take the opportunity, not only talk about how, like, how do women and men present differently when it comes to heart attacks, but also how do they present differently when it comes to strokes? Because again, when we think about strokes, think about, you know, asymmetry of the face, we think about weakness or, 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 or inability to feel in one part of your body. But again, yes, women can present like that. And if they do, that's actually a good thing because they recognize it early, right? But if they don't, if they have things like they get dizzy all of a sudden, they try to walk and they're wobbly, they feel all of a sudden nauseous and vomiting, that could be the way they present with a stroke or a heart attack. And so what I always, you know, whenever I advocate and talk about symptoms, I always tell my patients or anybody I talk to, if you don't feel right, like if something just doesn't feel yes. right, go get checked out, go get checked out right away. Be hesitant to take that Pepsid or that anti-acid thinking that it's just, you know, GI related um, because the data supports what I'm saying. We know that when a woman presents with a heart attack, they're more likely to present with these other symptoms than classic chest pain. And early recognition and early treatment is incredibly important in terms of how this may impact them or progress. So I, I, you make a really good point. Let Women tend to dismiss, right? We tend to dismiss much more than men tend to be a little bit more hypochondriac -y. Is that a word? Hypochondriac? I'm going to just make it a word, right? And women tend to dismiss. But what we're saying is that these kind of common symptoms like reflux or indigestion type symptom or nausea or dizziness can be something important. That's not to say that if you're, I mean, that's not to say that your intuition doesn't matter here too, right? But if you feel off, and I think we've both talked to patients who say, you know, um, I've had heartburn before, but this was different or this was yeah. their gut tells them don't dismiss that intuition. If, if you sense it present. And the worst thing that happens is that you'll be wrong. Right? Yeah, I mean, that's you'll a be good wrong. thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. Symptoms can be a little bit different, not as typical risk factors. Now uh, we talked about some of the, the uh, risk factors that are exclusive to women. So let's say they have those risk factors. Now, what does a young female who just experienced her first pregnancy had a complication, as you suggested, such as high blood pressure, preeclampsia, or gestational diabetes that has now resolved, right? A lot of times it's gestational, meaning that they had abnormal blood sugars during pregnancy, and then it they're now normal, it resolved. What can they do to, to now use that information for prevention. So one of the biggest things about prevention is recognizing, you know, all these risk factors. Okay. And once you, once we know you have X, Y, and Z risk factor, then the other piece of it is the ones that can, that need to be controlled should be controlled. And so for instance, if someone had a complication of pregnancy and related, let's say to hypertension during pregnancy or preeclampsia, that person should be monitored. They should be monitoring their blood pressures postpartum and they should keep a close closer eye on their blood pressure because they're at a 
fourfold higher risk of hypertension, right? If someone has gestational diabetes, they are at an extremely high risk of developing diabetes later on. So throughout their life, they need to keep an eye on their blood sugars. And so the way that I, the, the way that I advise someone that comes to me and that happens very often in our prevention, um, our postpartum prevention program is they are younger. They had this complication. Well, what we do is we say, okay, you have this risk factor. We see, we look to see if they have other risk factors, family history. Some people have familial hyperlipidemia, right? Like an inherited disorder. So we just make sure we don't miss any risk factors that they other risk factors they have. And then it's really talking about, okay, what can you do to decrease your risk? And the things that we emphasize are lifestyle modifications. That's really how you decrease your risk. Now, that's very different. We're talking about a scenario of a young person, right? That's different than someone that's coming in later in life who already has hypertension, diabetes, high cholesterol. Well, at that point, what we do is we keep a very close eye on all of those numbers and we make sure that those are controlled. We do something called an ASCVD risk factor where we actually calculate someone's risk and then based on their risk, we determine if they need a cholesterol medication, a statin, um, if they need a baby aspirin to prevent heart disease. But we really do that based on their um, atherosclerotic risk score. We don't just decide that like randomly. So before we get to those older, older people or people who have established diagnoses like hypertension and high cholesterol, as you mentioned, let's go back to our young, uh, you know, postpartum female who had uh, preeclampsia per se, and you're talking about lifestyle factors. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time on this because this is something that's very near and dear to my heart. And it's not weight loss. You thought I was going to say weight loss. No. But one of the my personal pet peeves is that whenever we talk about nutrition, whenever we talk about exercise, we always talk about it in the context of losing weight. And yes, obesity is a risk factor for heart disease. But if somebody is exercising and doesn't lose an ounce from that exercise, it still has a benefit. So can we dig into the diet and into the uh, exercise recommendations that are independent of your weight. Thank you. And actually, I say that to every single patient that I see, because, you know, women, unfortunately, are more hyper conscious of, of their weight, and what you know, what their weight is, and losing weight. And the first thing that I say is exactly what you pointed out, which is I care about how much physical activity in terms of honestly, for me, in terms of importance, physical activity is key. And I'm pretty direct about what I mean by physical activity. Activity. I tell them, you know, the American Heart Association recommends 30 minutes, five days a week. And but that is moderate intensity activity. And then I explain what moderate intensity activity is, you want to be a little short of breath, you want that heart rate to increase. If you're just doing a leisure lap around your neighborhood, that is not moderate intensity activity. So I do emphasize that to, to your point about about what you said, which is that regardless of what happens with your weight, you are protected by physical activity. We actually published in the European Heart Journal a study where we looked at women in the Y study, and we looked at women who were coming in with chest pain. So yes, they were not young like the ones that we were talking about. But what we found is that in these women that were coming in with chest pain, some of them had blockage, some of them didn't. 
the women that actually that had high physical activity, so women that had good physical activity, regardless of whether they were obese, actually had better outcomes. They had better mortality long term than women who were who were normal weight unfit. So fitness was very protective when it came to what happened later on, regardless of the weight, regardless of being obese or overweight. And that's actually been shown in other studies, which showed that if you actually compare men and women when it comes to fitness in first-time presenters with a heart attack, they actually found that high fitness was more protective, interestingly, in women than in men. So not only is fitness important regardless of your weight, but interestingly enough, there may actually be a sex difference where for some reason, women are actually more protected by fitness than men. That's great. So again, just to reiterate, what you're saying is that even in individuals who are overweight or quote, obese based on their body mass index, if they are exercisers, then they are going to have a reduction in mortality. So that means less chance of dying from heart disease as compared to non-exercisers, independent of your weight. So, I mean, all people should be moving their bodies, but if you are one of those women who had a complication in pregnancy, the number one thing that you can do for yourself is get moving. Yes, that's exactly what I emphasize in my in my patients that come to see me and talk about how do I reduce my risk? I just had a pregnancy complicated by preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, preterm delivery. And this is like my number one. I'm like, this is the focus. And then the other one, you know, which of course I learned a lot from you is nutrition and about a healthy diet. The one that I tend to recommend because I know it the best and has, um, when, when we look at data, especially for cardiovascular disease, the Mediterranean diet um, has the most robust data. And so we do provide guidance and educate our patients on what is the Mediterranean diet. Absolutely. The Mediterranean diet is the most studied diet on planet earth, particularly Mm -hmm. in respect to, with respect to cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, strokes, among other diseases. Just to simplify it, I mean, basically, this is, uh, I mean, people can look up the Mediterranean diet pyramids, which I think are very helpful. They are surprisingly high carb, right? People, this is something that people don't really realize, but they are not processed. So getting in whole grains, uh, getting in lots of beans and legumes, uh, which are part carb, part protein, they're kind of hybrids getting uh, some good fats in, getting their other animal protein from fish and dairy, and limiting sweets and red meat. I mean, that's in essence what it is. And lots of veggies. Yeah. Lots of fruits and veggies. So that is, yeah, that's in essence, the dietary pattern. Yeah. So great. So there's lifestyle uh, changes that we can make and um, that help in terms of prevention. But women and men are different. I mean, heart disease is so fascinating because women and men are different. Every facet of this disease, including pathogenesis, which means that the way that heart disease happens in the body in women is much different than men. 
And without getting too uh, nerdy, scientific-y, which I mean, I love the nerdy stuff, but can you just explain like what that means and how it's different in women? Yeah, so so we know that um, you know certain diseases, um, men and women have similarities. Um, women have uh, blockage in the large arteries. Men have blockage in the heart arteries that cause heart attacks. We know that. But for instance, we've learned that women can have are more likely. Well, uh, when you compare heart attacks um, that happen without any significant blockage, there's a much higher percentage of that happening in women. Meaning that. People will, number one is to raise awareness that people can actually have a full-blown heart attack and have no significant blockage in, in one of the epicardial arteries or the arteries in the heart and not require a stent. Because usually when we think about a heart attack, we're like, oh yeah, someone got a stent because they opened you know, a blockage. There's actually people that can have, it's a small percentage, but it's still um, around 10% can have a heart attack and no blockage. And the majority of those people are women, okay? Meaning they're having a heart attack for other reasons. What are those reasons? They may have a plaque in the artery that that closed off the vessel. But when we go look, there's no evidence of that because it went downstream. They can have something called spontaneous coronary artery dissection, which is that a flap creates a false lumen and then blood goes the wrong way. And that actually is a very common cause of heart attacks in young women, uh, especially after, after pregnancy. Then there's other things that can cause um, a vasospasm is another cause of that. So there's, there's reasons why women can have a heart attack and not have a, a blockage in the large arteries. There's, a, there's another disease that's even more common than that, which is problem where women and men, but more common in women will have symptoms of angina. So chest discomfort, chest pressure, uh, sometimes it's atypical, sometimes it's jaw pain with exertion, random chest pains. So they'll have these, these symptoms and then have no blockage in the large arteries at all. Again, no blockage. And then a lot of times why they have that is because they actually have disease of the tiny little vessels that we cannot see on an angiogram. So the tiny little vessels called the corneal microvascular system is actually diseased. And so what we've learned is we've relearned to, to realize that yes, women can have diseases like men do, but they can also have other diseases that are more common in them. And we have to do further digging to be able to give them the diagnosis. And that's really, I think the main point here, because the, because the pathophysiology, because the disease process is different, meaning that it's not necessarily this big blockage in a vessel the way it is for men, mm-hmm. then picking it up on a diagnostic test is also going to be different. So for people who are having recurrent chest pain and they finally get an angiogram and the cardiologist looks and says, well, good news, you have no blockages. Yes. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's the end of the story for women. Let's say somebody is having these symptoms that are concerning. They know that something just doesn't feel right. They've had a standard diagnostic procedure that doesn't show a blockage. What do they do next? Yeah. So what they should do next is really seek someone that specializes in women's heart disease. And there's there's centers throughout the country in Los Angeles, where you're at is Dr. Barry Murray at the Women's Heart Center at Cedar sinai um, But essentially what you need is specialized testing and, and cardiologists that um, will perform these specialized testings to diagnose small vessel dysfunction as the cause of that chest pain that you keep having, even in the absence of 
blockage in the large arteries. And so what are those tests you may ask? Well, there's some non-invasive tests. One of them is an MRI of the heart, a stress MRI. And the other one is a PET, um, where again, these two tests try to diagnose the small vessel dysfunction. And then there's an invasive test where they actually go a step further. Um, yes, we know you don't have any blockage, but it also they actually give you medications to help induce the abnormalities in the small little vessels. So not only are they able to fi- figure out, um, is there an inability of those tiny little vessels to dilate in response to exercise, which is why a lot of people have the chest pain or the symptoms with exercise. And then we give another medication that helps us determine called acetylcholine if there's spasm of those vessels at the little artery level or at the larger artery level. So either microvascular spasm or coronary vasospasm. So there's this, you know, specialized testing that we can do. The invasive test tends to uh, be done in specialized centers. That's not usually readily available in most hospitals. So if you are being told, you know, that chest pain is in your head, that's not real chest pain because you don't have any blockage. Well, then that's the time to find, you know, seek a second opinion of someone that actually specializes in this or can guide you to get the testing that you need to determine if this is the underlying cause. Yeah, it's fascinating because for so many years, we've really focused on this large vessel blockage. Mm -hmm. And this was data that was not even existent, definitely not mainstream when we were in medical school talking about the tiny vessels, the microvascular disease that is also more common, of course, in women, as you mentioned. So it goes back to um, advocacy again, right? Once again, women, we need to advocate for ourselves. Absolutely. That's what it comes down to. You know, I can tell you the number of women that come to our Women's Heart Center at Christ Hospital, essentially, because they have been told over and over again, because they've had one stress test after another, that has not shown that there's an abnormality, but they know that their symptoms are real. And so they keep, you know, they keep seeking until they finally find someone like myself, or um, uh, as you guys have at in LA, the Cedar sinai Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Center. Right. So, so pursuing, you know, women's part health or a center of excellence in, in women's part. Can we talk a little bit about stress? and uh, stress-related heart problems in women? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what we've, you know, we've learned there's more and more data coming out that shows that stress is definitely linked to increased risk of cardiovascular disease and women have more stress. Um, You know, they also have more depression, they have more anxiety. So that will definitely increase someone's risk of heart disease. Um, In my subspecialty, you know, when we talk about vasospasm, I've definitely seen, and there's definitely a a link between higher stress and more episodes of chest pain in someone that has vasospasm. So there's definitely- And vasospasm, sorry, is just the constriction of the vessels, which can induce a change in blood flow and cause pain. Exactly. Thank you. Yes, that's that's the, the vasospasm is what I was alluding to earlier that we can test with that invasive test when we're looking for disease that causes chest pain that's not significant blockage in the large arteries. So that's exactly as you described it is spasm that occurs at the level of the larger artery or the or the tiny arteries we can't see that causes chest pain, usually random chest pains. And what you're suggesting or what you're Dating is that stress can cause that vasospasm that can then 
Well, what we have seen is that what the studies have shown is that stress can increase someone's risk of cardiovascular disease. And then in my, in my area, in my particular um, program for microvascular dysfunction, I have also seen in that the patients that I, that have diagnosed vasospasm, that I've seen a correlation between um, higher levels of stress and more chest pain episodes based on the patient's report. Right. So Again, because we we want to empower people with actionable bites, actionable steps. So let's say we have, you know, a highly stressed female. I'm sure it's going to be super hard to find one of those these days, right? As we we spoke offline, the two of us before we started recording. Uh, Or has some form of, uh, you know, uh, mental illness or just, you know, common variety depression. Yeah. You've also done some research about on how, what measures we can take, what lifestyle measures we can take and how that impacts heart disease. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Hi friends, it's Dr. Adrian, and I'm dropping into your podcast to offer a love letter to you. I believe that our hunger represents our unmet emotional and spiritual needs. And by leaning in and listening to our hunger, we have an opportunity to hear our needs, and to respond. I know this not only from personal experience, but from listening to the stories of hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the past almost 20 years. I have compiled these stories, including my own, into Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. This book is not just about weight loss, but about life and contains lessons that I know to be life-changing. If you don't believe me, head over to my website at dradrianudeem.com where you can obtain a free sample or to amazon.com and check out the reviews for yourself. Yeah, so when it comes to that piece, you know, it's I think it's multifactorial. Um, once again, exercise is a big piece of it. I do, I think exercise, you know, can kill multiple birds with one stone. When you are out there, you get to have that 20, 30 minutes to yourself. I think that really helps with like mental health and having space. We know that there's some research that has shown that, you know, going outdoors and being exposed to the outdoor reduces levels of stress, you know, certain physical activities like yoga, mindfulness. I mean, there's a lot of different techniques when it comes to reducing stress, but ultimately, you know, for, for the women that it's more than just stress, where they actually have a diagnosis of depression, a diagnosis of anxiety, I do emphasize the importance of being treated for that depression and anxiety, because that is fundamental. um, Because a lot, as you know, a lot of, a lot of women and men in the United States, have untreated depression, untreated anxiety. And so that only exacerbates. So there's a lot of times where it it goes beyond just, you know, the regular stress that is manageable, and then it becomes an actual illness. So I do encourage my patients when I see that it's beyond work stress or beyond, you know, daily stress that can be managed with some of these lifestyle, you know, lifestyle interventions that at that point that they do seek, you know, an expert opinion and go to therapy in addition to medications. Yes. And actually, um, as we're recording this just this week, the uh, American College of Physicians came out with new guidelines on depression that Mm -hmm. stated that either medications 
or cognitive behavioral therapy can be used as first line of treatment. So for people who maybe are wary of just going on an antidepressant medication right off the bat, it appears that, not that it appears, it has been shown that therapy can be just as effective as a first line agent. So the bottom line is just seek someone's guidance, someone who knows, don't dismiss it. Because again, I think particularly right now where uh, post pandemic, there's a lull that has continued. And I think people have just kind of sucked it up as the new way of being. We're not in that accused phase anymore. We're kind of in a post pandemic phase. We can't attribute it to a, a acute stressor or to that individual stressor. So if people are still having symptoms that they're worried about, or even if they're not worried about, if they're having symptoms and they should seek expert guidance. Absolutely. Yes. That's my advice. You started to talk earlier a little bit about women with known risk factors. So we talked about the younger female who had pregnancy related. Let's talk a little bit about hypertension, high cholesterol. There's been recently some changes in our guidelines. We used to tolerate higher blood pressures. We now know that that can be harmful. Oftentimes yes. high blood pressure and high cholesterol, things are that are dismissed because it, there's no symptom, right? It's not like a runny nose that you have to deal with. It's silent, right? Thus silent killer. So can you talk about the changes in when we should be thinking about treatment? And then can you talk a little bit about um, dismissing some of the concerns around treatment? People don't want to be on blood pressure medication forever. They don't want to be on statins. There's been a lot of um, myths around and misunderstandings about potential side effects of statins. Can you alleviate our concerns there? <laughs> Absolutely. So let's take, let's go with the silent killers. Well, they're, they're both silent killers, but you know, let's start with hypertension. So hypertension, you're right. The new guidelines have lowered the cutoffs for, for blood pressure to call someone hypertensive and also for the goals of hypertension. So essentially if someone has um, the goal for, for the treatment of hypertension is a lot more aggressive. So now when someone else has hypertension, our goal is for that top number, that systolic blood pressure to be less than 130. And our goal is for that bottom number, that diastolic blood pressure to be less than 70. And why is it that there has been a, this change? And why is it that we're targeting these lower blood pressures? Well, that's because there's been really good data and really good studies that have come out that have shown that the lower the blood pressure, the better. Okay. Meaning the less heart attacks, the less strokes, the less heart failure. So uh, the less cardiovascular events. What one part that I want to kind of highlight is that if you actually look at the data for sex differences in blood pressure between men and women, you'll, I suspect that in the future, again, this is just my hypothesis, but I suspect that in the future, as we get more data on sex specific differences, like, you know, males versus females, when it looks, when it comes to blood pressure, that we may actually, um, in the future, see the guidelines change the, change the goals for men versus uh, women. And, and I think that the female goal is actually going to even be lower than what it is right now, because that's kind of what the, the data is showing us that in women, they actually may benefit from even lower blood pressures. And so when I have someone with a diagnosis of hypertension, 
I definitely, of course, again, lifestyle modifications is key. Um, and not only what we talked about at the Mediterranean diet, but low salt or, as, you know, at least to moderate the salt intake, because we know that that can increase blood pressure. And then the other thing is what you alluded to is if we need to be on blood pressure medications, that what the way I explain it to my patients is you have to understand what blood pressure does to the heart. It puts this heart under a lot of stress. And so when you have high blood pressure, you're causing your heart to remodel in a negative way. Okay. And that's what leads to heart failure. And so what I always meaning say that the remodel, meaning that the, the heart muscle is changing to right. try to adjust to those high pressures. And that over time is what results in heart failure. It's one of the things that can result in heart failure. And so I always um, explain that to my patients and I say, you know, it doesn't, it shouldn't matter as much what dose or how many medications it takes to get your blood pressure control. What I, what I try to shift the focus to is we want to get that blood pressure to less than 130 over 80 in whatever way it takes, because we want to protect your heart against your heart fighting against the high blood pressure. And so less of an emphasis on what dose, how many medications, and more of an emphasis of like, let's protect your heart against this high blood pressure. And if, you know, if, if you change your diet, and then you can change your diet in a positive way, you can eat less salt, which is what we want you to do. If you're able to lose some weight, we know that that can also help blood pressure. And that would be exercise and exercise and exercise too. But what I'm saying is I encourage all of these things, but I rather pull back on, on blood pressure medications and keep that blood pressure under good control rather than waiting and keeping that blood pressure high to see how people respond to their lifestyle modifications for too long. Because yeah. I do think that we, we diagnose hypertension, but you know, let's say it's a new diagnosis. Many times people have had that hypertension for a long time. And so the sooner you diagnose it, the sooner you want that blood pressure to be under control. And if it requires medications, then I, I try to explain that the goal is really to get that blood pressure and protect that heart. Yeah. Again, bottom line is you're not going to feel it. You're not going to feel the high blood pressure, mm -hmm. but it is impacting your heart and also other organs, your kidneys and right. All the organs in your body are facing this higher pressure that they have to compensate for. And so while exactly. lifestyle change can help, uh, we need, we should be more aggressive about medication, starting medication because it has been shown that reducing blood pressure with medication does save lives in women. Exactly. And just to emphasize one point that you made earlier, which is what is normal blood pressure? Because many times what we used to think was normal now is actually borderline blood pressure. So just to emphasize normal blood pressure is less than 120 over 80. Okay. So less than 120 over 80. And so the 120s to 130s, and it's now considered an elevated blood pressure. Okay. And that 130 that I was talking about, which our goal is to get people less than 130 over 80 when they're being treated, that's considered, you know, hypertension stage one. And so the blood pressures that we're using to define these different categories, it's, it's a lot stricter than it used to be. Right. 120 and not 140, which is what we used to think. And then 140 kind of rolled into 150. Right? Oh, no, 140 now. Um, so the systolic blood pressure of 140 or higher, now that's considered stage two hypertension. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. 
So that's a little bit about hypertension. Oh, and before we move on, can you please address the white coat syndrome? So a lot of times patients will come in and they'll say, oh, it's just because I'm in the doctor's office. It's always high when I'm in the doctor's office or, oh, another common one in LA is traffic. Oh, is that something we should dismiss? No, we should not. So let's say it's real white coat hypertension, meaning that when you're at home, your blood pressures are always perfect, less than 120 over 70. Well, that's fantastic. If you're truly always, you know, normal at home, and then you have high blood pressure in the doctor's office, only white coat hypertension, which you describe, that's actually not benign. There's actually research that has shown that even if you just have white coat hypertension, you're at a higher risk than someone that has normal blood pressure, no matter where they are. Meaning as person that has normal blood pressure at home, and when they go to the doctor, they have normal blood pressure at the doctor's office. That person has a much better outcome than someone with white coat hypertension. And we actually have to monitor those people with white coat hypertension closer because they're they're at a higher risk of developing hypertension all the time. So yes, that is not something that we should just blow off and say, oh, that's just traffic's fault. And then just to go back, when we started talking, we got we talked about hypertension, but we need, didn't get to talk about cholesterol and, and hyperlipidemia. So I just yes. want to highlight that because statins is a big, big issue. Yes. So So as I was saying before, when we're risk stratifying someone, we take a lot of things into account. We take blood pressure into account. We take someone's age into account. We take their cholesterol numbers into account. We take whether they are on medications into account, whether they have diabetes, and we calculate something called the ASCVD risk score. And so if someone has an elevated ASCVD risk score, the current recommendations, and this is someone without without known you know, heart disease, meaning they haven't had a heart attack before, they don't have any known blockage, based, based on the risk, then we will advise someone to be on a statin. That's a cholesterol medication. What do statins do? Statins decrease the risk of developing plaque. They stabilize plaque if it does exist. And so that's why it decreases the risk of heart attacks in the future and strokes. And so there's a big, there's a big misconception about statins and, you know, they, they cause every muscle ache that someone could imagine. Well, there was actually a really good study that now is about two years old that it randomized people to sugar pill and statins. And what it found was that patients on the sugar pill had more muscle aches than patients on the statins. And so whenever, whenever I'm risk stratifying, you know, one of my patients in clinic, I, I share this information with them and I say, listen, you know, if you have, if you take a sugar pill, you're probably going to, you know, you're going to develop that muscle ache almost at the same rate than if I give you the statin. And when I share this, this, this study with my patients, a lot of them chuckle, but then, you know, really agree and, 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 and start taking this cholesterol medication, I think with a more open, um, a little bit more open than they were before that, just realizing that, um, you know, not every muscle ache you're going to develop is related to this medication. And another kind of um, misconception that's out there in the grapevine is the relationship between statins and maybe cognitive deficits or dementia. Can you address that also? Yes. And so, so that's, that's more of an issue of, you know, smaller studies that have shown that there can be an association, but again, that's just an association. And the important the important thing to remember about statins and dementia is that one of the most common causes of dementia is atherosclerotic disease, which is plaque, right? And so, and so 
you know, one of the ways we actually reduce the risk of stroke and we reduce the risk of, you know, plaque and plaque buildup throughout the body is with the use of statins. And so just, you know, we always have to be careful, you know, where is the data coming from? How big is the study? What was it looking at? You know, what dementia was it looking at? Because again, not, you know, dementia is not just one thing. We, we know, I'm not a neurologist, but we know that it's very complex. You know, there's Alzheimer's dementia, there's, there's, vascular dementia, which again is the most common cause of it. And so we have to really look carefully about what is that particular study, you know, addressing. Yeah. And I think again, the take home here is, first of all, even though we're, we're physicians, I think we're both, we're not drug pushers. Yeah. Right. And I think there's a lot of concern about that right now. So we should call it out as it is that, you know, doctors are just prescribers and a lot of, and, and we don't in general, talk about lifestyle modification and the ways in which we can modify our risk factors through lifestyle alone. And what we've been saying here today is that yes, lifestyle is very important in prevention and even treatment of heart disease. And we should be employing all those things, but also in this case, the use of blood pressure medications and the use of statins have actually been proven to Mm -hmm. save lives. And so we have to weigh that right against some of the other information out there that is not well substantiated it hasn't been shown in in good clinical studies we have to really go back to the fact that these medications if you have hypertension or high cholesterol are life-saving agents for for diseases that are quote silent so it does take a little bit of discipline to recognize that you need to take a medication for something that you're not feeling but that you are taking ownership of your health for prevention down the line. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I don't know if you, you know, something that also come, I get asked about when we're talking about this is about, you know, when do you use a calcium score, right? Cause I think a lot of listeners yes. um, hear a lot of buzz about the calcium score and, 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 you know, and, and these other um, LP little A and when should I be asking for that? Cause again, sometimes we have to be advocates. Patients have to be advocates for themselves. And so again, you know, it comes down to and just say what those things are for people who don't know, you know, what a calcium score is. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to, to maybe talk a little bit about. So, um, you know, when we talk about risk stratifying someone um, first of all, just to, you know, I've mentioned this, but let me just dive a little bit deeper into it. So risk scores like the ASCVD risk score, which is the one that we use the most is for people between the ages of 40 and 75. And essentially it it excludes patients with diabetes because we know that patients with diabetes that are very high risk. So those patients should be on a cholesterol medication. And it also excludes patients that have a familial hyperlipidemia, meaning their bad cholesterol, their LDL is greater than 190. If If you're one of those high group patients, you should absolutely be on a statin and on a baby aspirin to decrease your risk of developing cardiovascular disease. So those patients are excluded. So then we're talking about, you know, people that some people think they're healthy or people that, that, that may have some of these risk factors. So then what we do is what I was saying, we take all these different measures, look how their age, male versus female, their cholesterol numbers, their blood pressure, um, whether they're on certain important medications like an aspirin, a hypertension medication, then we calculate the score. And so if someone has a score less than 5%, they're at low risk. 
Okay. And so those patients are like, great job. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep exercising, keep with your Mediterranean diet, keep going. Okay. If they're between five and 7.5, those are considered borderline, borderline risk patients. Okay. And so when we look at borderline risk patients, then we want to take into account a lot of the risk factors that we talked about. So the adverse pregnancy outcomes like preeclampsia, we want to look at um, early menopause. Those are the more, more women specific. We want want to look at, do they have a family history of early, early disease? You know, do they have other risk factors like the rheumatologic diseases that we talked about? So looking at those other risk factors to help you figure out where is this person in the borderline, you know? So the risk enhancers become very important to think about. Also that, that level, the levels that I was talking about, the LP little a, that's essentially um, a lipoprotein that has been shown to increase someone's risk of heart disease. So now you're hearing a lot of people measuring the LP little a before we used to talk a lot about LDL, which is the bad cholesterol versus HDL, the good cholesterol. So this LP little a is now part of the risk enhancer. So if it's elevated, it means that you may be at a high risk, even if your LDL is um, not as high, or you may be, you know, more, you know, closer to the, the risk group than the borderline. So it just helps you kind of know within your borderline, how risk, you know, at what risk are you? Those patients, you know, whether they should be put on a statin becomes a conversation between the patient and the physician, because again, they're borderline based on their risk score. And then we use these risk enhancers to as, to as a team decide, should you be on a statin medication? Again, in addition to all the other good things you should be doing with exercise and physical activity. But then, so then we have the 7.5 to 20%, okay? So then you have the people that are in this intermediate risk, okay? And so in the intermediate risk patients, that's when, again, if they have risk enhancers, you're more prone to want to put them on a statin. But that's the group where this calcium score comes into play, okay? Because what does a calcium score do? A calcium scan just scans you looking for calcium in the coronary arteries. And then if that calcium score is elevated, then that means you have existing plaque that has become stable because calcium is calcified plaque. But if you have calcified plaque, the chances are you have uncalcified plaque, the one that is more at risk of causing rupture and creating a heart attack. So that's why in people that are in that intermediate risk group, many times you'll hear physicians recommend a calcium score to better risk stratify whether they should be on a statin and a baby aspirin. And then of course, if someone's greater than 20% risk, then they're high risk. That's someone that really um, should be on a statin and a baby aspirin. And the calcium score may and may or may not be that useful because they're already at such high risk that they, they, the likelihood is that they should be on these preventive medications. And so we tend to really not get calcium scores on someone with diabetes or someone with high cholesterol, familial, or with a risk score that's so high because it may be falsely reassuring. So again, I think to, to reiterate here, there are a lot of ways in which an individual's risk can be determined from their medical history. Uh, I, I emphasized a lot the pregnancy-related complications, but you brought up again the autoimmune disease, which I think is really important too. So to reiterate that lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and these autoimmune Crohn's disease, these autoimmune conditions that are so common are also risk factors. So in terms of identifying risk, also identifying disease through laboratory tests that you mentioned, as well as imaging tests. And then 
the many strategies that there are for prevention, which span the gamut from lifestyle interventions to actual uh, medications and pharmacotherapy like blood pressure and medication and statins. I just love this topic because it's number one, so relevant to women. And we we still love you guys. We're not this, this all this information can be used for men and women, but it's um, important to, to note that again, this is something that women should also care about, not just the men. And I also love this topic again, because it is empowering because there's so much that we can do to minimize risk and to bring down those very high numbers of disease in women to much lower numbers. So taking in all this information and using it for prevention is um, is where it's all at. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise. And one big one that I just wanted to end with is um, CPR because you know we that's mm-hmm. been in the media very recently, and and the fact that you know if we get to the point that unfortunately someone actually has a cardiac arrest and there's an actual collapse, you know women unfortunately are much less likely to receive CPR, and so and and why I mean for all the obvious reasons you're going you know you're compressing against someone's chest, um, and and women have rest. And so, so I, I want to, I want to, I've been emphasizing this a lot more, um, you know, as we look at, at this month's uh, February, because it's important to raise awareness of the, of how important it is that if you see someone that has collapsed or educating anyone around you of the importance of starting CPR, regardless of whether it's a male or a female and, and, and doing it right away, because that really does save that person's life. And since we're talking about that, can you just comment quickly on chest compressions versus breathing. Oh yes, that's a great one. So yes. So the most important thing when you're by yourself is do not worry about the breathing, chest compressions, compress the chest, continue to compress the chest, call for help. If there's a bystander, if you're doing two people CPR, that will change the algorithm. But if you don't know how to do the algorithm, it's better to just focus on compressions and not to try to give breaths because that can cause delays. What matters is that you keep that circulation. Well, thanks again, Odaimi. This has been so helpful and chock full of information. I want to have you back again to discuss more. And I hope that our our listeners will really take all these recommendations to heart and share this episode with women that you love, because again, there's a lot of pearls for prevention here. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me.